Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Fall is here, and those of you with easy keepers and metabolic horses need to be extra careful at turnout time. As the seasons change, the sugar content in grass increases, often leading to a seasonal spike in cases of founder. The folks at Equithrive have formulated products to help you navigate these potential pasture pitfalls. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order, plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. If you listened to the last podcast episode with Dr. Andrew Van Epps, you know that he is one of the world's leading researchers on laminitis and is incredibly knowledgeable about the latest treatments and diagnostics to figure out exactly what is going on in a laminitic case. I saw him at this year's 2023 NAEP Saratoga Vet and Farrier Conference, and he spoke about some of the latest published research and some that's about to be published on what's happening in laminitic cases at the cellular level. And some of the things that he talked about, I thought would be really great to discuss more in depth. When I reached out to him, I asked if he'd be willing to talk about some fact-checking and myth-busting when it comes to laminitis, because sometimes we hear a lot of really crazy assumptions and assertions when it comes to laminitic courses. Uh, The last podcast episode was a replay of our conversation from 2019. So I'm hoping that everybody will listen to that and get a basis of what the three main causes of laminitis are and how to treat them. Um, so I'd love to spend some time on this episode doing maybe some fact checking on laminitis, you know, some common assumptions, statements or myths and, and kind of clarify those, especially in light of all the new research that uh, seems to have come out even in just the last few years. Sounds good. Great. So I was just going to jump right in kind of in the thick of it. So hopefully, uh, people are all caught up (laughs) on, you know, the basics from that last uh, conversation. But one thing that I found super interesting from NAEP was your discussion on looking at radiographs of laminated courses. And one very common statement I hear is that you can see founder or rotation on radiographs, but you can't see laminitis. 
or, you know, you can't diagnose laminitis from radiographs. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more about some things that you've been noticing on ways to assess lamina health from x-rays. Yeah, I think probably the biggest development has been in the x-ray technology's changed a lot in the last sort of 10 to 20 years. And traditionally, we felt like we couldn't really uh, see acute laminitis on radiographs because unless there's obvious rotation or obvious sinking, you can't really make a call. But uh, you know, nowadays, it's pretty clear that you can actually see what's sort of loosely termed the lamella lucent zone. It's kind of this dark area, uh, dark band along the bone that represents the lamellae and some, some of the sublamellodermis. And you can actually see it on a digital x-ray pretty clearly. And we're actually finishing up a study that uh, we hope to publish soon that shows that you can use measurements from that uh, from that area to diagnose acute laminitis uh, fairly accurately. So, you know, I think that's a development that, you know, with careful measurement, uh, I think can help you know, to, to diagnose but also to track progression in some of these acute cases and perhaps might be helpful for, for vets in the field. Yeah, and I think you had mentioned that it was around, was it you're thinking 7.5 or 7.8 millimeters, you said? Um, until we publish it, I, I won't put an exact number on it, but it's, yeah, I, I think you can be fairly confident that, you know, certainly above eight millimeters, there are things that influence that, that measurement, like radiographic technique and magnification in particular uh, from, from different techniques that can kind of artificially increase that distance and also obliquity, so angle, but uh, above eight millimeters in most horses is you know, it's, it's concerning. Yeah, <laughs> good that we know that. So, you know, we know that 90% or, or, you know, around 90% of laminitis is from an endocrinopathic cause. And obviously metabolic testing is the best way to rule that out. So I have had some owners say that they are worried about stress or pain from laminitis, um, skewing the results on that blood work. Um, or even just like, you know, vets that say that they don't want to do metabolic testing on a horse that's acutely laminitic because the, the numbers will be off. Is this a legitimate concern? I know you had commented kind of briefly on it at the conference. It's legitimate in that, yeah, stress and pain can artificially increase insulin and ACTH, which are the two things that we're mostly interested in. But those increases uh, tend to be fairly mild in the whole scheme of things. And I think uh, it's a it's kind of an old-fashioned idea to feel like you shouldn't test horses that are acutely sore because you may make a sort of diagnostic error in classifying them as being insulin dysregulated. What you really want to know, what we kind of understand more these days, is we really want to know what their insulin level is. You know, is it 55? Is it uh, 1,500? You know, is it 500? Because... We want to know, is it above, you know, or is it in the type of level that would be causing active damage to the feet because then you need to take steps, you know, um, uh, decisive steps to control it. Um, you know, we're not as concerned 
about in an acute laminated course, if we get, you know, say our normal range goes up to, for insulin goes up to, say, 30, you know, if we get a, a 38 reading on, on a blood concentration, you know, in an acutely laminated pony or horse, yes, that could be due to stress. Is that going to change the way we, you know, manage that animal? No. But if we get a 500 reading, you know, or a 200 reading or a 100, 150 reading, um, is that from stress? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So I think we can interpret these results in the light of the clinical presentation. And it's important that we get these results as quickly as possible so we can act as quickly as possible because particularly in these insulin-induced cases, we you know, there's something we can actually take steps to control the, the driving force of the laminitis. And, and uh, uh, so we need to know what's going on as soon as possible so we can take those steps. Yeah, and I know that you had mentioned that I don't know if it was a study or you've just done kind of your own research into how insulin, you know, bathing the lamina and in insulin kind of breaks down that lamina connection. And that's concerning because a lot of these insulin dysregulated horses can have really high insulin throughout the day. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on some of the things that you had mentioned that might cause high insulin levels. I know obviously the the one that we're most aware of probably is diet in, in these horses, but you had kind of touched upon possibly, you know, liver damage or, or corticosteroids. And I didn't know if you could expand on those at all. Yeah, sure. You know, it's definitely, it's 80% genetics and diet. It's the combination of those two things that dictate what their insulin is going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, other things that kind of tip the balance, um, uh, obesity, uh, is probably the biggest one. Concurrent diseases like, like PPID pushings can interfere with their insulin regulation and push them over the edge. Uh, other diseases as well, drugs like corticosteroids, also reduce their sensitivity to insulin. And those are probably the main things that lead to, to high insulin. I don't think we have a good handle on whether in some of these horses and ponies where the liver dysfunction, the insulin's mostly cleared by the liver, and it's it's therefore possible in some of these that have really high insulins, particularly even before feed, you know, the fasted insulins, whether they're not, whether they're having problems clearing the insulin properly because they have some liver dysfunction. And, uh, you know, I don't think we have a good handle on that yet, but, but from looking at a lot of these cases, I feel like that there are some of these that are out there that... Um, that there are contributors that perhaps we don't, we haven't got a finger on just yet. And the other main one is probably old age. So you, uh, as you get older, your sensitivity to insulin just naturally decreases. And I think sometimes that creeps up on horses and ponies that have been under the same management for you know, the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years at a, at a, a single uh, place of living. And then suddenly they're having trouble with, you know, with insulin at, sort of age 18. In some of those, it's purely just old age. And in some of them, it's early onset. It's PPID starting to, to take hold. So, you know, I think we need to be aware that just because a horse or a pony has been fine um, for its whole life under particular management, yeah, that can, can change with time for these reasons. Yeah, and I was wondering if we know the mechanism for why a PPID horse might have high insulin? Is that because they're also insulin dysregulated or is it because the ACTH is driving up insulin levels? 
That's a tough one. And uh, the one thing I forgot to say is, is um, fitness and sort of exercise level also play a role in insulin sensitivity. So, you know, horses and ponies that have been uh, exercising and then for whatever reason stop exercising, uh, yes, they may gain weight, but even if they don't gain weight, their sensitivity to insulin will probably reduce uh, just with that lack of exercise. So it's another consideration to take into account. With PPID, you know, we traditionally felt like it was the endogenous cortisol. So PPID causes, uh, it, it's in essence a dysfunction of the pituitary gland, which causes an excess of this ACTH hormone and, and, and a bunch of other things as well. The ACTH acts on the adrenal glands and they produce more, more endogenous or, or sort of um, naturally produced corticosteroids within the body. And those corticosteroids, uh, you know, definitely do reduce insulin sensitivity and cause high glucose and, and other things to, to occur. But interestingly, a lot of horses and ponies don't have high cortisol levels. So I don't think we're all sold on that as being the, you know, the one reason for it. There are a bunch of other things that are produced by the, that particular part of the pituitary that's, that's having trouble, the pars intermedia. There are a bunch of other hormones, peptides that could also potentially have effects on insulin, uh, insulin sensitivity and insulin production. And, you know, I think we don't fully understand why horses with PPID tend to have uh, insulin dysregulation. There's also another school of thought that you know, horses and ponies with insulin dysregulation, with chronic, I guess, equine metabolic syndrome, that they are more likely to just go on and develop PPID for similar, for the reason that they have more oxidative stress and, and therefore are more prone to, to kind of neurodegeneration, which is what PPID is. It's very similar to Parkinson's in people. So this sort of chronic oxidative stress that, that happens in these overweight EMS-type animals with insulin dysregulation may go on to actually um, make them more prone to developing PPID. So it may be that way around rather than the other way around. So I don't think we fully have a handle on it yet. And it's important to recognize that there are some horses and ponies with PPID that don't have insulin dysregulation. So, Yeah, right. And actually, my next question was going to be about cortisol because, you know, on social media, you often see, you know, maybe uh, you know, non-veterinarian comments, just horse owner comments of blaming cortisol for for horses that are struggling with PPID or blaming cortisol on laminitis. And, and um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's people that are trying to uh, maybe come up with a more natural way other than using Perglide, which is, you know, the trusted and, and effective medication for PPID. And I kind of honed in when you had mentioned at the conference that it doesn't seem that there is a lot of excess cortisol in PPID horses. And I just want to make sure that I understood that right. And I don't know if that's something that you've, you know, has, has cortisol been tested and found that it's not really high in these horses? Yeah, no, it has. It has. Um, and yeah, it's not like a traditional, that's why we don't call it Cushing's disease in, in people and in dogs. Um, Cushing's disease can be primarily adrenal or primarily pituitary, but you tend to end up with an excess of circulating cortisol. 
Whereas in horses, that's not a consistent finding. So I think most people that are researching or have knowledge on PPID in horses are not sold that it's a cortisol problem that causes their insulin issues. So, But uh, on the other end of it, um, giving corticosteroids to horses, either in joints or orally or, you know, definitely causes insulin dysregulation. So, you know, in most cases it's safe because they're at a starting point where, you know, their insulin is not too high and their insulin sensitivity is quite good. But in some cases where horses already have an underlying problem with insulin dysregulation and they already have, you know, high post-meal insulins, corticosteroids that are given in joints or in the muscle or orally like dexamethasone or, or um, triamphenolone or, or uh, methylprednisolone succinate, those things can push them over the edge. There's just no doubt about that. Um, and you can take a normal fit sort of standard bread or thoroughbred horse and give it some dexamethasone. We did this as a model to induce insulin dysregulation and you can cause their their insulin to to really be quite high particularly post feed so you know i think the understanding of steroids and laminitis is is evolving to the point where we now recognize that it's important to you know perhaps even test some horses and ponies for insulin dysregulation before they receive um, corticosteroid treatment and or monitor them while they're on it to make sure their insulin is not getting too high. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And something else that I found was super interesting. um, I mean, I thought all the talks were great, but, you know, you talked a bit about, you know, rotation reversal. And so, you know, another common statement that I hear all the time is that you can't correct rotation or once a horse is rotated, they will always be rotated. And can I was hoping that you could give some examples of times that you've seen reversal on radiographs and what form of laminitis it seems that that can happen with or when when lamina damage or rotation may be permanent. Yeah, I think um, it's particularly with insulin-induced laminitis, so hyperinsulinemic laminitis, this you know, even when you, particularly when you have an acute episode, the pathology that you get, the lesion in the feet is a little bit different to what we see with, say, a sick horse or, you know, a horse with colitis or diarrhea or pneumonia. Um, those cases, in, in those sick horse cases, you get some damage to some of the fundamental components of the lamellae, including the basement membrane, which makes it it tends to be a bit more progressive uh, and it tends to be irreversible. It's different with insulin. Insulin, you know, it, it, it causes stretch of those cells. It causes some division of those cells. But most of the time, unless it's really, really severe, most of the time, the, the, what we call the basement membrane, which is kind of a junction between the, the epidermal side, the hoof side, and the dermal side, which is the bone side, that tends to stay intact. So what you find is that in those cases, if you control it and and treat them aggressively early, you can see 
not only just a halting of progression, but you can actually see some some reversal of mild amounts of of uh, displacement. You know, when I say displacement, I mean sort of sinking and or and or rotation, an increase in that lamella zone measurement. You can see that suck back up, reverse back up, which is really interesting and not something I think that we appreciated. Sort of a few years ago, we we felt it was. You know, once the damage was done, the damage was done. And then, you know, in the more chronic cases where they have more profound rotation, sort of 5, 10, 20 degrees, you know, is it reversible? You know, in some of those, particularly if they're insulin mediated, you know, I think with the right hoof care, sometimes with, you know, some of these horses require more dramatic interventions like flexor tendon, you know, cutting the flexor tendons is one of those, but some of them don't. Um, you know, it is possible to get a little bit of reversal of that rotation. Sometimes not, not all of it, but, but certainly over time with some of it. You know, I, I think it's a mistake though to to give false hope. Generally, once you have rotation that's you know maybe more than sort of five to ten degrees. It's it's unlikely that you're going to get you know a a reversal of that, regardless of the cause. So that's probably the bottom line. But I think you know what we're recognising more and more is that if you intervene early and if you are aggressive with controlling the underlying cause, which in most of these cases it's insulin, then you can achieve better results perhaps than we we felt in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. And and you talked a lot about treatments too at, at NEP um, and specifically cryotherapy and its ability to kind of stop that or, or slow or stop that lamina damage at the cellular level. And I know that your studies that you've done are looking at continuous icing, like days of continuous icing. And something that came up in, in one of the sessions, I know I think a few of the um, people attending had asked about this, is that you know, what happens if we ice intermittently or what happens if an owner can go ice the horse for like half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night? Is that sufficient and or would that help at all or could that cause harm? So I'd love you to comment on that. Yeah, I don't think we know 100%, um, but all the information that we have from experimental studies is with continuous cooling. And, you know, I think in a, in a case, in an acute case, that's sort of moderate uh, to severe. I think it's the to get, to get continuous cryotherapy, which is hard. It's very hard to achieve in the field. It's it's probably something that is much more of a hospital uh, thing. I, I think it's probably the number one reason to refer to hospitalize some of these uh, horses and ponies at least for two or three days is to get that round the clock continuous cooling on the feet which can help to to limit the damage um, you know I, I i don't know whether intermittent cooling is helpful or not and i so i guess i can't really uh comment um we don't know for sure either way but i, I you know I'm, i don't think it's likely to be harmful but i don't know okay yeah 
Awesome. Um, so I just have one more main question and then, you know, if there's anything else you want to talk about, I'm happy to add that. Um, but you know, in, at the conference, you talked a bit about supporting limb laminitis and research showing that ischemia or lack of the perfusion or blood flow plays a role in that or seems to, but it doesn't play a role in SERS laminitis or endocrinopathic laminitis. And I, I know, and I want to make sure I had this right. Cause I don't want to misquote you, but you're referencing a study that, uh, the effect of just standing around may have uh, a negative effect, a negative effect on lamina health. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I know you're looking at horses that were standing in a stall for, I think, 48 hours. I'm, I just want to make sure I have that information correct of what you noticed in that study. Yeah, that, so those horses were standing in stocks, um, not just a stall. So they were in an environment where they couldn't take normal steps um, and that was for a 92-hour period. Oh, wow. And they were actually supposed to be controls for the horses that had a preferential weight-bearing, so a, like a high heel shoe on, on, on one foot and just a bit of extra load on the other foot. But what we found out of that study was that, you know, all, there, were, there were lesions in all of the, the feet, which tells you that, you know, horses need to be able to walk around normally it takes steps normally it's not just increased load that damages feet in these horses with fractures and other painful conditions of the opposite like it's just the lack of normal walking around uh, you know they don't take um they're not walking around like a like a normal horse in a stall environment they're spending large amounts of time standing fairly still on that on that opposite leg and it's probably why when we look at the feet from these cases of racetrack breakdown fracture um, you know synovial infection things that are really painful for long periods of time that end up getting laminitis in the support limb it's not just in the support limb it's actually in all four legs it just tends to be worse in the support limb. so when we look carefully we find that None of the feet are normal, and it's probably because they're just not moving around normally. And when we've done studies on perfusion in feet, the one thing that seems to influence blood perfusion in the feet is movement. So uh, taking actual steps uh, is what tends to drive blood flow in the, in the lamellae. So you know, more and more we come back to... To that, and in terms of trying to prevent supporting limb laminitis, which continues to be a um, you know, really devastating problem in horses, that you know, it's probably the num- number one reason why we can't reliably fix fractures and other things. It's not the fixing of the fracture; it's the complication of laminitis that we tend to get uh, afterwards. But it remains the you know the number one reason for failure in those cases, and we hope we're we're zeroing in on ways to um, either recreate uh, or facilitate that sort of movement in those horses um, or uh, come up with alternate ways to to get the blood pumping around the foot, even in the, the limb that isn't moving too much. Right. And is, has anything been promising with that? Uh, a little bit. Um, in fact, we're doing, <laughs> we're doing something right now along those lines um 
you know, I, I it's very hard to simulate um, what happens in a walking step uh, in terms of, of pushing blood through the foot. Um, and it may be that we need, uh, and we're, we're working on this now, to get some uh, advanced kind of dynamic robotic sling system, which, which exists. Uh, we're hoping to install one here shortly uh, to try to, to help in the rehabilitation of these animals to facilitate them actually moving around, perhaps with some load taken off, um, and also to facilitate that kind of load cycling uh, that we need. And one of the other things we're working on is tracking the number of steps that they take and, and their weight-bearing behavior in that in that recovery period when they've got fractures. So we there's two ways we do that. One with with a foot-mounted sensor, and the other one is with video analysis, with AI analysis of video. Um, and what we hope we can come up with is a way to identify risk uh, accurately in these horses. So when we see the type of, of um, you know, maybe a reduced frequency of stepping, the type of pattern that we know is going to lead to laminitis, that we can intervene, even if it just means um, facilitated walking or some sort of physiotherapy or um, or if it means an, an apparatus, a device to try to facilitate blood flow through the foot, we can get that going early on these cases. Yeah. And I mean, this is all really exciting to me because it's crazy to me that four years ago I was at NAEP and, you know, we had all this information on laminitis and now, you know, just four years later, there's that much more research that's been done and that much more that's been confirmed and more treatments that are coming out. So it's amazing that in a relatively short amount of time, we've learned so much and confirmed so much. Yeah, it started though. I mean, it started, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I know it seems that way, but, uh, you know, a lot of this started, a lot of the insulin work started back in like 2007 at University of Queensland with with uh, Chris Pollitt, Katie Asplund, uh, Kathy McGowan, Martin Salens. This has been kind of almost 20 years in the making, you know, and, you know, some of the early uh, work also, Melody, Delat down there, um, 2010-ish. That's when a lot of this work began, and then, and then Boehringer was working with with some of these researchers and helped develop uh, and and funded and performed some of the earlier work on these SGLT2 inhibitors, which are the drugs that that are really useful for controlling insulin. It seems, and you know, it's it's only now we're starting to see the benefit of that. Um, you know, sometime later, because I think we've 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 got better, we're, we can more readily or, or we, we more readily understand the need to frequently measure insulin and to control it carefully in a lot of these cases. And now we have the tools to control it using these drugs uh, more effectively than we previously had. You know, I think we see the benefits in a lot of these cases. Um, uh, uh, you know, from the fruits of probably 20 years worth of, of, of research on this stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's At least. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, those are the main questions I had and I don't know if you had anything else that you feel is really important to speak on, but, um, thank you so much 
for even what you've said already. So uh, that's, uh, um, I mean, the only thing I'll add is that, you know, the laminitis research, there's no human equivalent. You know, it's very hard to get funding from traditional government sources like NIH. Um, and the USDA doesn't necessarily see horses as a agricultural species anymore, and it's not a high priority. So funding for laminitis research comes from primarily from foundations like the Grayson Jockey Club Foundation and Morris Animal Foundation uh, and private donations. So what I'd say to you, to your listeners is that, you know, if you want to support laminitis research, you know, uh, donations are really important. And the other thing I'd say is there are less and less people who are actively researching in this area, um, many less than when I began sort of 20, 25 years ago, which worries me. Uh, so, you know, if if there are young scientists out there listening, it's a really interesting thing to, it's challenging for sure, but it's really interesting and rewarding uh, as, a, as a research topic. And uh, if there is anyone who wants to help you're making a donation to one of those foundations or directly to to uh, people who are doing laminitis research it goes a long way in this in this field so yeah absolutely and is that a way you know would they just contact you if i put your email in the show notes or is there a way yeah, that they or, can uh, on my website there's a donation link but i don't necessarily want to <laughs> solicit my own donations but uh, <laughs> you know i think um uh, uh like i said Grayson Jockey Club, Research Foundation, Morris Animal Foundation, and or researchers that are directly doing work on, on laminitis, helping support them is really important because it's not something that there's a lot of funding out there for at all. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully this in some way inspires someone to either research or donate. So um, we'll get the get the word out there. But thank you so much for being willing to spend your morning chatting with me. And thank you so much for the time that not only you've put into researching all this, but also presenting it and sharing the findings with others, because um, it's been huge and just very, uh, it's been great to be able to learn this. It's always a pleasure because you're, uh, Alicia, you're always well-educated on what's going on, uh, much more than many other people that I talk to from the media. So I, I always enjoy talking to you. Let's, let's book in, do one in another couple of years' time. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you have a great rest of your day and then you enjoy your weekend. Cool. You too. Thank nice you. to talk to you. You too. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.